Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station podcast. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dahlqvist. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, 33% general pawnings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% election. Which elections are you mentioning? Are you referring to exactly? The Fijian local ministerial elections. Ah, I yes. thought you were talking about the Very elections. Very interesting race. The Paris bar keeps sending me all these messages about elections as well. I thought you were talking about that. Yes, I'm putting myself forward to be the president of the Paris bar. <laughs> Please. Uh, no, I'm sure I know you guys watched because we have a, a chat group going. So um, we all had to kind of put work aside for 48 hours, um, stay up late and keep our eyes glued to the TV about the selection. But we are on the other side. There will be some parallel proceedings that will draw out any, you know, kind of concrete uh, moving forward. But we have an indication of hope for those who are like-minded as myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's not talk, let's not get into U.S. politics just as yet. No, that's an entirely separate podcast. Yeah, moratorium, three weeks at the very least before it's ever mentioned again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, on and off air. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm sure our listeners who just, you know, are listening to us are are looking forward to hearing about something else than the new president-elect or vice That's president. True. I'm sure they have <laughs> many other there, feeds. There is a, an arbitration election coming up. I don't know if you paid attention to that. It's not, it's not really an election in the sense that there are popular votes, but we do have a, an arbitration precedent, maybe, one nominated at least. Did you see this? No, I didn't. What's that? It's, it's Alexi Moore's replacement. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Okay, of course. With um, uh, Claudia Salomon, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. She has not been elected, but she's been recommended, uh, which I think in practice means the same thing. That's she. She is now the four, the front runner to become the new president of the uh, ICC court. Ah, uh, but it, it's kind of like a passing the torch versus like a campaign your position. I don't know. I, with more time, I would love to dig into this because there's a lot mm. of rumors and I, I know there have been, there was some sort of shortlist, but it's not obviously like the US election who, primaries. Who are the other candidates? Do you know? Um, I, yeah, but I think that's one of those things. Oh, that okay. Not we're not talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, is she the only woman? No. And okay. I think my, my sense, and this is like the nine degrees removed away from the actual process, but I think my sense is that there the consensus or a lot of people wanted it to be a woman to succeed, mm-hmm. which is obviously the case and not just any woman, but a very experienced one. Yeah. I will did, fingers crossed on this one then. Yeah. Did Alexi say what he was going like publicly, what he was going to move forward, not to tap into nope. your private knowledge again, Joel? No, I don't think so. No public statements. And I have no, what's private information whatsoever either obviously on this yes. i guess we will learn more 
I think it's sometime next year that the official handover is when his term ends. And at that, that point, I'm sure we'll know. He obviously has a busy arbitrator practice, I'm sure. Yes. He mm-hmm. will have something to do. So where in the world are you, Sadia? I don't see any uh, French countryside in the background of your, <laughs> of your Zoom call. Not, not yet. The schools are still open, so I'm still locked here in Cambridge. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, yeah. Same place. Same <laughs> place you, as before. No changes. And you, Joel? Also, still in London. I'm very happy that there's no construction going on in the apartment below us right now in, in Lambeth, in London, where we spent the vast majority of the lockdown. And we postponed a few recording sessions for this podcast because there's been a lot of noise. <laughs> but we have about probably a five-minute window now before they start with their gutting of the apartment below us. Again, it's one of the beauties of lockdown it seems like there is construction everywhere both residential and in the city wherever i go outside it feels like they're taking advantage of this like rebuilding the city when no one's watching (laughs) these are the things in lockdown that you realize you that didn't bother you before because you were never home and now construction in a residential area which you would never be home to hear is now the bane of your existence or in my case the woman learning and teaching jazz um, (laughs) is caused a really bad problem (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's get into today's episode. We have three topics as usual for everyone. The first topic will be, it'll be an interview heavy segment, uh, interview heavy episode. So the first interview I did not conduct, but Joel, I think you led that one. Oh no, Sadia, you led that one. Um, I was I was Jill and and I also asked some questions, but it was mostly Jill, and uh, it was of uh, Toby Lando, who needs no introduction, uh, and it was it was on his uh, the topic of his Kaplan lecture of 2010, so it was like 10 years ago, on which was called Tainted Memories: Exposing the Fallacy of Witness Evidence in International Arbitration. So we're going to see if anything changed since his lecture and uh, (laughs) very much looking forward to that. And then the second interview will be with Cornel Marion, who Joel and I have met in our time in Stockholm, but he is a citizen of the world, we can say, and he will talk to us about um, taxation and investor state arbitration, Um, not only Article 21, but um, other aspects of how taxation came about in the in the realm of investment arbitration and how it's analyzed by tribunals uh, even today. And then you will also be presenting our happy fun time topic, which um, we can battle it out in a debate style format, but it will be about um, the elitist conversations in local clusters. How should we address English centrism in international law and whether yes. it should be French centrism. I was going to say English centrism. <laughs> yeah, it definitely won't be Swedish centrism, I'll tell you that. Well, let's see when we get that to that point. I might have something <laughs> to say about that. Um, and let's finally, before we move on to the first segment, thank the, arbit- you know, the IA reporter, investment arbitration reporter, Joel. Yeah, it's not the IA reporter, is it? It's IA reporter. No, just IA reporter. <laughs> Definitive. Our sponsor, clearly as everyone should know at this point for season five. VIA Reporter is an <laughs> on, online service focused on the international investment law with a team of expert analysts offering up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable data set of more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information, 
to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Great. And on that note, let- great. And on that note, let's move on to the first segment. So thank you very much, Toby, for joining us, uh, despite the time difference, although I guess you're used to this time difference at this point and working yes, remotely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my, my pleasure. There, are, there could be many reasons for talking to you, but we wanted to talk to a, a specific topic which, which has piqued our interest. Uh, and the timing, I think, makes at least somewhat sense because it was 10 years ago that you delivered the Kaplan Lecture. I don't know exactly when it was, though. It was in 2010. Maybe it's 10 and a half at this point. So, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. This, the, sta- the standard thing I say, of course, about this is that my memory is now unreliable as to the actual lecture. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Walked right into that one. And we should mention for the, for the listeners who, who are not aware that the, the title of the lecture was Tainted Memories exposing the fallacy of witness evidence in international arbitration. And now that we have the benefit of 10 more years, uh, I thought it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on, on how witness examinations have developed over the last 10 years. But perhaps just to back it up and, and set the stage first, do you mind very briefly running through the elevator pitch? And I'll, I'll be happy to ask a lot of questions because I think this is a tremendously interesting topic. What is or what was maybe at the time the, the fallacy of witness evidence that you intended to expose in the, in the lecture? All right, so that's, um, that's a difficult first question to summarize it all briefly, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, the, the way that international arbitration is structured at the moment is very much focused on witness evidence. Most, most cases, in most cases, witness evidence will form a key component, uh, and that means that it will take up a lot of resources, a lot of time, and it will account for a lot of the costs of the overall uh, procedure. Um, and that is in um, identifying witnesses, in taking their evidence, formulating witness statements, having them exchange, um, uh, responding to the other side's witness statements. And then the actual hearing very often is, is devoted to witnesses. In fact, if you ask people what's the purpose of an arbitration hearing, some will say that it's for submissions. Many people would say it's actually for the taking of evidence um, so that you will have opening submissions by counsel but on sufferance, because the tribunal will proceed on the basis that everything's in writing already. And so they'll have opening statements by way of summary, and they'll encourage counsel to be short. And then you move into the witnesses. And the witnesses uh, may take up uh, really the bulk of the time. And then you may or may not have closing submissions, uh, because people then uh, are looking towards post-hearing written briefs. So it struck me as being curious that we devote so much time and energy to witness evidence and yet, most of us in this field are completely oblivious to what is a very substantial body of scientific research on the probity of witness evidence, uh, in particular, the reliability or lack of reliability of human memory. Uh, in fact, what we are doing in the arbitration field is we are professing to be experts in memory, at least to an extent, uh, as counsel when we elicit what we say are recollections, we ask witnesses the whole time, do you recollect this? Do you recollect that? 
in cross-examination, we challenge recollections. And the tribunal uh, professes to be expert in determining the reliability of recollections because the tribunal will rule on whether evidence is persuasive or not, whether, the tribu whether a witness uh, has remembered something properly or not, and, and how it links to the documentary record. But we're doing this with no training. Uh, and, and what's curious is that so many people are trained in this field, um, and that's what led me to look at the scientific evidence. And what, what I came across is a, a bulk of material that's very familiar to people who know nothing about arbitration, um, the, the, the specialists in psychology, um, and neurologists, um, specialists of the brain. Most of this work has grown up in the field of criminal law and criminal procedure. And that's where traditionally it's felt it really matters. Uh, for example, eyewitness testimony. Um, how reliable is it when somebody says, I, I saw somebody do something and I can identify them later or I can tell you what happened? So there's a huge bulk of um, learning about the difficulties, the vulnerability of human memory in that criminal context. And so my Kaplan lecture was to bring that, that research into our field. Uh, and it sparked actually um, a sort of bit of an, a minor obsession of mine. If you were to speak to my family members, they would say that's incorrect. It is a major obsession. Um, where I've, I've just carried on sort of uh, exploring more. And what it led me to actually was to um, work with or to interview and then spend some time with um, one of the great world specialists on memory, uh, Professor Mar Marianne Gary uh, from New Zealand, who is the um, star student of the doyen of memory failure. And that is Professor Elizabeth Loftus in the States, who really was a pioneer in this field and uh, responsible for much of the real groundbreaking uh, research. So I had, this, I had this extraordinary meeting with Professor Gary, memory expert, knew nothing about arbitration, I sat across the table from her and I said to you, I'm now going to tell you what we do to witnesses in international arbitration. I'm going to describe to you what the usual process is. That is a lawyer's perspective from the first time we get a case, when we start to contact witnesses, and then we start to proof them, take their evidence, draft witness statements, uh, and then going through to presenting them at a hearing and what happens to them in a hearing. Uh, direct examination, cross-examination, re-examination. Now, as I, as I went through this process, her eyes just started to widen and widen. And she kept saying, no, you don't, you don't, you, no, you don't do that, do you? And, and so by the end, she was just nonplussed. She said, how can you possibly think that at the end result, that memory is, is no longer, is not tainted or corrupted because memories are so fragile. They're so amenable to corruption. So actually, it just put a spotlight on what we do and what's wrong with what we do. So that is probably an overly long explanation of, um, of, of really the genesis of all this. Um, of course, not everything that is relevant in criminal procedure is relevant to us in commercial arbitration. Not all witnesses are called to recollect. A lot of witnesses are called simply to flesh out the documents or give you some background. But I think a significant proportion of witnesses are um, deployed through the language of recollection. And that, that to me means that we all in the arbitration world have to catch up with what's going on in other fields. That was a very good summary. Uh, it feels like we could call you in the middle of the night and you'll be able to do this. I guess it's, <laughs> it's the benefit of a major obsession. 
What would you say are some of the the things that we do wrong? What are some of the things that that non-arbitration lawyers uh, would react to? Uh, yeah, that are that are sort of matter of course and and how we deal with witnesses in the average arbitration. So now to answer this, you have to you have to allow me a little indulgence just to explain um, high level how the human memory works. Please, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm going to do this really really sim- in a simplified way, and I'm doing it with a major apology to all memory specialists out there. All right, because this is this is complex field, so I'm just going to simplify it. Yes, and I make cav- it this caveat is noted for the record. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, the first thing to note is memories are nothing like recording devices that we understand. They're not like video recorders or, or audio recorders. They simply work in a totally different way. And to understand that, one has to break break the process down into three stages. So the first stage is the initial acquisition of information. That's when we perceive things and we take them in through senses. The second stage uh, is storage in the brain. And the third stage is retrieval. Now, each of those stages uh, is a complicated process which is easily affected by factors. The first one Perception is obvious. The way we perceive events, of course, depends upon our own understanding of, of, of what we perceive, how we make sense of it. So that's, that's nothing very controversial. Uh, it will depend upon our own understanding of stereotypes, our assumptions, our existing knowledge. You can understand that's why people will see one situation differently from another. Where it gets interesting is the second stage, storage. When information passes through from your short-term memory to your long-term memory, your hippocampus not to get too technical, divides it up into different components. So one memory will get stored in multiple different places, broken up in your brain. Uh, Images and colors will be stored differently from words in a different place. I mean, science has now got to the stage where they've identified 20 different types of information that will be broken down and put in different bits of your head. When it's being stored, it gets combined with your assumptions, your biases, your existing information, your stereotypes, because you're making sense of it subconsciously. So it's not just stored, it's actually processed. And then when you get to the, again, forgive me for, I'm really simplifying, but when you then get to the retrieval stage, your brain has to reassemble those components. Every time it does that process of reassembly, it might not be exactly the same reassembly as last time. It again can be, it can be affected by other information. So what that means is that, uh, to give some simple examples, um, I can affect your process of retrieval by the way I ask you a question. Um, if I ask a question which has got embedded in it information, Subconsciously, you might take that information and that might turn up as part of the reassembled recollection. So I can say to you, um, when you saw the car accident, um, where was the broken glass? And if the car accident that you saw was a month ago or a year ago, the fact that I have now suggested to you that there was broken glass might well turn up as a component uh, subconsciously. Uh, in your recollection. So you'll say, well, I, I, think it was, I think it was on the right-hand side, even if there isn't any broken glass. So there are many, many tests that have been done to show that extraneous information is easily introduced and will form part of the memory. Now, 
the key thing to remember here, which is so, makes it so interesting, we're not talking about dishonesty. This has got nothing to do with witnesses lying. Mm -hmm. It's about honest recollections that happen to be mistaken. So you are honestly recollecting, but you're, but you're providing a memory which is not actually um, reliable. So put that into our arbitration process. Uh, a witness, you ask a witness questions, what happened? We do it um, normally with leading questions. So let me understand, you went to this meeting and you said this, is this correct? Now immediately we are tainting, we're, we're providing, we're not, this is, that isn't neutral. Uh, uh, it gets worse and worse of course, because nowadays a witness statement is not a witness statement, it's a statement of a lawyer drafted for the witness. So the next thing is after a load of leading questions, and documents being put under a witness's nose. You said this then, didn't you? You said it for this reason, did you? Or was it for this reason? After that process, we then present them with a draft. Could be a draft of 100 pages. Okay. And the witness will read that draft. This is the point where Professor Gary was almost fallen off her chair at this point uh, when I was describing this. Um, and so the witness is going to read it all. It all makes perfect sense. And, and yes, yes, this is now jogging my memory. And we use this expression, I'm going to refresh your memory. Mm -hmm. What does refresh memory mean? To a lawyer, it means something. To a psychologist, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Refreshing a memory means like you're, well, you're introducing information or you're, you're, you're working on a memory, you're reforming a memory. And, and then, then there are other factors. I'm going to stop in a minute. There are other factors, like every time you get a witness to do that process of reassembly, to, to, to articulate a recollection, that, that reassembled memory will then get stored. The next time you ask them to, to tell you about the same thing, it will be reinforced by how it was reassembled last time. The more times you ask a witness about information, the more confident they may get about their recollection. So by the time you, you rehearse a witness or even prepare a witness, if you've gone through it several times, by the time they articulate it to a tribunal, they'll be absolutely sure this is what happened. But that's because of what's happened, the process that has happened. Then you put into play cross-examination, which of course is the most artificial way, the most ridiculous uh, um, uh, way of trying to elicit recollections, because it's all very pointed and weighted. Um, and so it goes on. So, so that's really where, where um, what we're doing bears no relation to the science. So I think the the average person, including the average fact witness, may be forgiven for, for thinking that his or her memory is, in fact, much better than it is. Because we tend to, as you say, believe in our memories more than we should because we are, in essence, recreating them and they are very complex things. But is it your impression, and this might be a delicate question, perhaps you can answer it generally, is it your impression that international arbitrators in general are aware of these limitations and, and proceed accordingly in, in evaluating witness testimony? Or is it also a problem that the key players in the system uh, do not grasp the complexity of, of how memories are formed and recreated? Um, I think it's, there are very, very few people in this field who have any proper grasp of the science. Very, very few. Now, that, that needs to be refined a little bit because there are um, a number, well, a large number of arbitrators who are skeptical about witness evidence anyway. Uh, my, my, and I'm not naming names now, though I'm tempted. But um, <laughs> there, there, are, there are witnesses who, there are, I mean, there are arbitrators who I know I've sat with and I, I know them well 
will they will sit through an entire witness hearing very politely nodding during the course of witness testimony, whilst at the same time in the private deliberation room will roll their eyes and say this is all utterly useless. Uh, especially, obviously, people who have not grown up in the common law tradition um, and, and, and feel that documentary evidence is much, much more important. Mm -hmm. um, so, th so there's that rider. There's also a rider that there are, as I said at the beginning, many international arbitration cases where witnesses are not really recalling things. They're being helpful because they're just giving you some context and color. They'll be able to say, well, actually, generally, this is what we did, or this is the way that meetings took place, or this is how we related to each other. But it's those cases where you really are looking at a recollection. Did you do something or did you not? Did somebody else do something? That, I think, is where there is a real lack of appreciation of the science and where I see arbitrators regularly, they have to. They're making judgments and they're doing so on the basis of whose recollection is more reliable. And to me, that is something where there really is a desperate need for a greater appreciation of why the witnesses is testifying in, in the way that they are. I mean, a, a simple mistake is arbitrators will confuse confidence with probity. Mm -hmm. So they, they will, because a witness is so emphatic, I remember it. I mean, it also, this comes from witness training, especially in the States. Mm -hmm. Witnesses are taught, they're taught to be detailed in their recollection. And this can be very compelling for a tribunal to hear you can have a witness who will say, I remember what happened at that meeting. And I'm going to tell you why I remember, because I remember that was the day that my wife was ill and I had to take her to the hospital first. So that's why I remember. Now, that sounds compelling. Oh, I see. Now, now that makes sense. So that must be a day that was marked on your memory. Many witnesses are taught to do that. Um, and even if they're not taught to do it, it doesn't mean anything about reliability of the memory. It just means that they're good at telling the story or articulating it. Again, not being dishonest. They may well remember that, but the, 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 the most um, specific of details can be wrongly remembered. The most specific, even traumatic details can be wrongly remembered. And if we're coaching witnesses, should we also be coaching arbitrators? And I yes, ask this yes. part, partly you mean because teaching. I... Yeah, exactly. Not yeah. coaching. That might be another <laughs> the right way of. Yeah, for, of the, for the record, I've never coached a witness. Just in case anybody's. Uh, yeah. No, but but you're all right. Obviously, that it, it happens from time to time, and it probably has, yes. has something to yes. do with, with legal culture. But it, it's not unheard of, and and witness evaluation, memory science training for arbitrators is, I think, unheard of. And I'm happy to stand corrected if, if I'm wrong. Whereas, by contrast, in in many domestic court systems, of course, in particular, I think in civil law systems, it's more or less mandatory for judges yes. to go through this. It's something that we should introduce. And perhaps on a practical note, how would we go um, about I think, Yeah, I, mean, I think, I think it, it should be introduced. And as you say, uh, in most domestic court systems, it already exists. And in particular, um, domestic criminal court process, criminal judges get training on memory, generally, in many systems. Um, they also um, will receive expert testimony on memory in many criminal cases. Um, Elizabeth Loftus, who I mentioned, who is the sort of the grandmaster in this field, regularly testifies as an expert witness in U.S. court proceedings on the workings of human memory. She did so famously in the Harvey Weinstein trial in New York uh, for the defense on um, on potential vulnerabilities of memory because 
the Me Too movement uh, involves historic claims. So any case where you're dealing with something that might have happened many years ago, you need to consider. So there is training there, both for juries and for judges. But in arbitration, we, we haven't so far made any steps. But the big development that happened since my Kaplan lecture um, in, the, in the intervening time is the establishment of the, an ICC task force on this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that, um, that is a, a task force that was very, very successful in my view. And, it's, and it has recently completed its work and it's, and it's set out a very detailed uh, report. It's the ICC Task Force on Maximizing the Probative Value of Witness Evidence. Um, and what they've done is they, they took my, my lecture actually, um, took the themes from it and really developed them properly in the context of arbitration, including commissioning um, an expert on memory in the UK to do research on the extent to which this criminal research applies in arbitration. That was Professor Wade who was, who was, um, who was instructed to do that. And the research shows it does apply in arbitration. And what the task force has now done is set out guidelines um, for um, the treatment of witnesses to try and reduce the problems, both before hearings and during hearings, and also instructions for arbitrators on how to approach this. So that's really the major development that's happened since. And what we'll have to see once the task force report is, is actually officially published and launched, which will be very soon, um, it'd be interesting to see how it's received. Mm -hmm. Especially considering the differences between jurisdictions as to the guidelines, you know, to the rules that apply. I mean, it would be good to have some, not just guidance, but just common rules on this. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to hear, actually, have any jurisdictions have introduced any of those, um, um, you know, research that you were talking about? I mean, probably the professor in New Zealand you mentioned, or, um, or I was thinking more in the U.S., for example, where it is more common to do um, criminal proceedings and cross-examination in that sense. Have you seen any jurisdictions where these rules are introduced? Um, I'm not sure about... Um, rules. There, there are certainly there are guidance notes mm -hmm. for judges. Um, so, and there, there's quite a lot of development that's happened in terms of, for example, how you handle um, witnesses who have, uh, claim to have observed something. Um, how you would test that evidence. Um, so, in the criminal field, there there is quite a lot of guidance, but but. One has to do a process of translating that really for our civil law, civil civil disputes, and and the and the arbitration field. But I think the ICC task force has gone a long way to do this. But as you say, of course, internationally there will be different views and different approaches. And one thing they do in the ICC task force report they emphasise is that in the end it's got to be case by case, because you you can't really lay down hard and fast rules. There are different types of procedure, different types of witnesses testifying on different types of issue. Another aspect of the sort of international nature of our field is, of course, the, the cultural differences as well, not just the legal differences. But I would imagine that in an international arbitration where you have both parties and counsel and arbitrators from different cultural backgrounds, that it would be to, to create unified rules because the way we display confidence and recollections and how witnesses act on the stand, as it were, I would imagine differs a lot. And, and of course, that has to be filtered through the arbitrators from, from different backgrounds. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I, I've had experience 
over the years of different types of procedure where I've seen witnesses handled in very, very different ways. Um, I often refer to one experience I had, which, which um, I'm probably now inaccurately recalling, but it was a long time ago, but it was very, very interesting. And that was a domestic Netherlands arbitration. Uh, I, was the, um, I was an arbitrator, one of three, and I was the only non-Dutch uh, person in the room, actually. Uh, in fact, my Dutch markedly improved in the course of the arbitration, I should tell you. But <laughs> the, um, the interesting thing was that it was run according to domestic procedure, which meant that the, the witnesses were called by the tribunal. And nobody had actually seen or had any contact with the witnesses before they turned up at the hearing. Totally different to what we used to. Um, all that we had was a paragraph produced of what they probably could testify about. So they come fresh and raw before the tribunal with no lawyer contact or preparation. This is a white knuckle ride for counsel, but it is, um, but it is fascinating because it's, it really, you, you, I felt I got closer than any other proceeding to what might have been an uncorrupted recollection. Of course, it comes out in sometimes in a garbled way. It comes out less clearly and, and less orderly. And in the common law system, a lot of counsel would say, well, that's unfair because the witness is not actually, may not be testifying as effectively as he or she could um, because, because the, the evidence hasn't been ordered or hasn't been presented in a way uh, to maximize it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, you know, there, are, there are different cultural attitudes to this. Couldn't one make the, the devil's advocate argument just to make this a, a bit fun that we're not necessarily after the truth and it is not a criminal procedure and and if the way we handle what is typically in arbitration is essentially another form of advocacy and all the players involved in the in the procedure are aware that this is advocacy and as you say sometimes arbitrators are more or less frank and in, in, in acknowledging this that it, it isn't necessarily a problem is it a goal in itself that we try to get to as close as possible to to witnesses' recollections of of the events that transpired? Can't we just accept the premise that this is advocacy and more or less skilled lawyers can do it more or less well with with handling it? So I think that what you're articulating there is something that most people are scared to articulate, but actually that is <laughs> um, that is what we're getting quite close to in an unspoken way. I mean, when you you know, as an arbitrator. I'm I'm saying this now as arbitrator. My view as counsel is completely different. As arbitrator, when you receive a lengthy submission from counsel and it's written in a particular form with a particular font, which is the law firm in-house font, and it's got a lawyer reference in the bottom left-hand corner, you read it through, and then you get to the witness statements that are written in the same font with the same lawyer reference in the bottom left-hand corner uh, of of great length with perfect grammar uh, and the use of long words. Um, then, then you, you, you know, it's difficult to take that seriously and say, well, this really is a witness, witness evidence now I'm reading and it's not submission. It just all reads the same. It reads like a submission. And um, the way that witnesses can be prepared for hearings is such that their presentation also can be an exercise in advocacy. You may choose your witnesses not according to who has got the most probative evidence or the best experience, but who is most presentable and articulate. You might choose your witness on the basis of who is best to withstand cross-examination, not who is best to testify. And that, that, that's gaming which goes on, of course. That's why my view as counsel is totally different, because one does it in most cases. But as arbitrator, you, you, know, you, you are not necessarily seeing everybody who you should see. You're seeing the best lineup 
that a party wants to show you. Um, and the most resilient and the most attractive and the most eloquent. Now, if you take this to an extreme, by the way, the same thing happens with experts. Mm-hmm. It's not always the best expert. It's the expert who is most articulate, attractive, um, resilient to cross-examination, can present well. You take that to an extreme, our process starts to look not very different to the ancient and respected form of ADR called trial by combat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what you're doing is you are, in the old days, all right, before the civil procedure reforms, you could resolve disputes by fighting. Uh, That happened for a long time, trial by combat, right? You'd fight the other person and who would win, um, would win. You're not after the truth. You don't care about the truth. You care about a process and the process is who's stronger. Right. Uh, one of the early uh, Pope Piuses, who was one of my heroes, was the kind of uh, Lord Wolf of his time because he introduced remarkable procedural reforms and he introduced the idea that you could actually get somebody to fight for you. Um, and that's how trial by combat. Now, now, how different is it if we're actually getting, we're priming our witnesses to fight for us? We're, we're, actually, we're, actually, we're actually putting in a team to try and, you know, it's got nothing to do with truth. So all this to say that I agree with you, there is, you know, there, there is that dynamic. But it's a very unfortunate one if we actually do um, go further down that route. Have things improved, do you think, over the last 10 years? You were obviously sitting as an arbitrator prior to the lecture and, and, and you have since. And we heard about the ICC task force. But, but in practice, what, what is your impression of how things have evolved and how, how the process has evolved? Yeah, I, I don't honestly think there's been that much change, at least pre-virus. Pre-virus, I don't think there's been that much change. Uh, because we're all quite set in our ways. Post-virus, um, there are some interesting changes because I think that uh, witness hearings have become harder uh, remotely. And one of the effects of that is that I think that people are more selective now about who will testify. And the witness process is becoming a little bit shorter, more, more concertina actually, because the lengthy process that one would, at least of hearings, that one would go through pre-virus are not so possible now. So there's a question mark as to how this will develop. Um, maybe witness testimony will, will become less of a dominant component in arbitration compared to submissions. Um, but I, I don't think there have been, in terms of theory at least, any major changes. But I'm optimistic that once the ICC task force publishes its report, that the, the debate will be re-energized. I should tell you, i just tell you one thing. Sorry, sorry to cut, but... No, 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 it's okay. I gave... I gave, I gave the captain, I've given the captain a lecture a number of times. Um, I once gave it um, to the Commercial Bar Association in London. Right? This is the Association of Commercial Barristers who are trained to cross-examine witnesses. That's, that's what they're trained to do. And they make their livelihoods by dealing with witnesses. This goes down as one of my most disastrous lectures I have ever given. (laughs) There was almost universal disbelief in everything I said and a resounding uh, consensus at the end uh, that I was mad and that there was nothing that needed to be changed because these are people who live and breathe cross-examination. So the idea they don't understand memory or that something should change in the process uh, was totally unacceptable. So it may still take some time in some quarters. Yeah, but, you know, if, if they're shooting at you, you're doing something right. It was probably yeah. a, exactly. a good sign. <laughs> I was going to ask in your personal experience as an arbitrator, of course, you can't name 
specific instances of, of people, but, um, but I was interested, like, I mean, you are, you, you started by saying that you were extremely passionate about this topic and I think it comes across really well. Um, I'm sure you must have, you know, discussed this with your co-arbitrators often in some cases and have their views changed, do you think? Um, how impactful has, you know, your research been so far? I think if, if you take time to explain it to people, from members of the commercial bar association they are very open to it mm-hmm. they are they are because because you know it doesn't take very long to describe it to for it to sort of i would have thought to to have some resonance and people start saying oh yes that must be right or i can yeah. see that or um so so um and i have done that there are cases where um where a lot of time is spent by council insisting on a particular recollection and i've i've had a discussion in a deliberation room afterwards about really is this is any of this really that reliable? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one thing I to, to show the strength of the of the science or how far it goes, you know, it's 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 interesting also just to just to note that the issue of corruption of memories is not just sort of vague details in somebody's life, um, even what are called flashbulb memories or traumatic memories can be corrupted. So those are memories of something life-changing, something that happened which you'll say, I'll never forget this, like Kennedy's assassination, uh, like um, the Challenger disaster, like 9-11. Research has been done on that as well, and it's been shown conclusively that those memories may not be any more reliable. The details may well be, uh, you may be confident about it, you know where you were when something happened, and yet it's shown later, actually, you're wrong. Um, I don't, there won't be time now, I think, to give you some examples, but they're, but they're fascinating. And it means that if it can go that far, then this really must be taken seriously. I think civil lawyers must be really happy to hear you right now and say, see, we always told yeah, you there's exactly. no need totally, for totally. examination. <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like the traitor to the common law now. Yeah. <laughs> so is that the conclusion, though, is that, that we... I mean, you said most of the hearing is is about witness examination, and that's true. I mean, that is the the gist of it. And we spend so much time and effort and money on this. Do you think we should reduce that? Then? It depends on the type of case, and it depends on the type of evidence that's being given. There will be many cases where it doesn't matter so much because you're not really talking about recollections. Uh, but you're still being assisted by somebody who was there at the time, giving you some fleshing out the color, explaining the documents. Um, but I think in cases where, but one thing, one thing about those sorts of cases is we shouldn't keep messing around with the language of recollection. If we, if, if why, why keep talking about, I'm going to refresh your memory now. Do you recollect, recollect this? Do you recollect that? Maybe that, that vocabulary needs to change. Maybe it should be, and this idea that, well, you know, we're calling a fact witness not as an expert, but as a, as a fact witness. And so they can't tread beyond what they actually recall. All of that is pretty artificial. And if we were to relax that and just say, look, frankly, you may or may not recall this exactly, but here are some documents and you might be able to give us some background. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that might actually speed <laughs> things up a bit. Um, and, and I think also some of our, some of our procedural rules, um, when you know the science, are faintly ridiculous. So I just give you one that that, um, that, that always that always kind of makes me inside makes me smile. Of course, I'd never show it as a as sitting as counsel. But if you imagine the process that a witness has gone through in order to give testimony, 
provide a witness statement, testify at a hearing, right? all of that process that caused Professor Gary to fall off her chair. You get to the end of that process, you get to, and, and through a full cross-examination, and then you get to re-examination. Now, in the course of re-examination, what will happen is, counsel will ask a question of the witness, and the other side will say, that's a leading question, you can't ask that. Now, how does that make sense? Leading question means you are suggesting the answer in your question, as if that's going to taint, at this point, the witness's memory, or taint the answer. But there has been so much tainting that's happened up until that point. <laughs> that, to me, is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> Maybe a, the perfect note to end on. Toby, this has been a pleasure. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us. Yes, thank my, you very my much. Thank you, Toby. Thank you. And just, just so we can tell our listeners, when do you think the, the ICC report you were mentioning will come out? It was due to be launched at some point this uh, coming autumn. So it should be in the next uh, month or two. At least that was the original plan, um, but uh, subject to um, a virus and, and all other things, I think. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll keep we'll our make eyes a, up. Yeah, and we'll make a flash in, in a future episode once it's out. We'll keep an eye open. Great. Thank you very much, Toby. Thank you very much. We are now sitting with Cornell Marion, who we have invited and very happy to have you on because you are one of the few international slash Swedish products coming out of the Swedish system, along with myself. Um, to talk about a very juicy subject, which is uh, taxation in investment arbitration. And what we're going to be talking about today is not that completely broad statement, because we could be here for many segments discussing that, but we'll try to limit it to the state's power to tax in investment arbitration in the specific scope of energy disputes, which will mirror quite nicely with your newly published book that is out now on Kluver. Um, of the same title. So welcome, Cornell. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, it's, you know, especially talking about a, a topic that I'm, I'm uh, is very near to my heart and there's something that I'm quite passionate about as well. So thanks for having me. <laughs> is, 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 it, is it still, as a, as a fellow uh, former true. doctoral student, <laughs> is it still dear to your heart or are you just about tired enough uh, now with, with talking about taxation and thinking about taxation? But I mean, this is this is really funny. But I mean, there is a part, there is a part of it that obviously that I'm quite quite tired. But um, I feel that there are still so many issues that that are left quite open. So um, yeah, quite I'm still quite quite uh, optimistic and, and and positive about this. So there's still work to be done. So there's still a remnant of passion, so to speak, Joe. <laughs> well, that's a great sign. I think that means you chose the right subject. Uh, how did you choose it, by the way? What, what, is the, what motivated you to, to delve into this topic, which is obviously uh, something that many people working in investment arbitration have touched upon, but where there isn't necessarily a lot of comprehensive literature? Right. Um, well, I mean, there, there's both a personal and, and obviously uh, an academic, you know, uh, academic side to it. And on a personal level, I've always found taxation as a, as a critical aspect. I think it's, it's one of those, those uh, aspects of the law that affects us um, in so many different ways. 
but on an academic level and both uh, both when it comes to to our fields um most of us are familiar with yukos and the decision that came out in the late 2000s basically and and there how important tax was and especially the um the circumstances leading up to it and how that that has has affected it um there's also another item that was was quite interesting is is in in reviewing some of the matters. I mean, I, I came across on the on the really amazing quote by uh, Thomas Valde that uh, that he 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 made in the plenary address to uh, the American Society of International Law, ASIL, in two thousand and eight, and it was basically connected to UCOS, but more or less in that plenary address. He called for a systematization of the red flags, or basically when tax measures are used, could be used more or less um, to affect uh, investments um, and how that could be arbitral tribunals. So in, in all truth, I mean, it was that plenary address coming across that plenary address that really motivated me. Um, to seek this, to seek seek a deep deep dive into into the topic, and and come across given that um, tax remains very important, especially now when looking in um, a lot of the developments, a lot of the the new strategies implemented by the states, tax remains uh, uh, the cornerstone um, of all of these uh, incentive schemes, basically. Uh, I'm thinking in 2008, Thomas Welder was obviously ahead of his time in so many ways. When he gave this speech, and I think he also published a few things, was he speaking, you know, prospectively, uh, identifying a potential future issue with taxation measures being challenged, or had we already seen enough cases so that he could point to, you know, uh, cases X, Y, and Z to to justify his concerns? It's very hard to say. I think this is an excellent point, Joel, because, you know, here, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're basically 12 years after that plenary address and we can basically deconstruct some of these. And um, what what you rightly point out is that Professor Wilder was definitely very much ahead of his time. And in some of his early writings, tax was uh, an item that that he took close to heart and he, you know in some of the the early articles he even uh, you know some of the joint articles that he wrote that he, he could see some of the, the problems arising from the energy charter treaty and how these kind of play out um my personal opinion and of course this is this is a personal opinion is that a lot of it was driven by yukos because at that time yukos was sort of the um the problem the problem that every every arbitration lawyer, every arbitration scholar was was really confronted with. Um, but I would not rule out the fact that the new schemes that were coming out in, in a lot of the European countries, that they were starting to emerge around the same time, um, they were on other people's minds. So I would say both. Um, but of course, a lot of these items from what I'm seeing is, is driven very heavily in, at that time by UCOS. Yeah, I think, you know, taxation really touches to, you know, an inherent right of this sovereign power. And I think when you mix that with energy disputes or you cross, you know, have a cross or an intersection between those two disputes, you really get to kind of the heart of something like the Vattenfall where you have, you know, a, a hitting really to this like sovereign right power to tax. And so I think it, although I'm sure he was very, you know, ahead of the time, it does on its face seem like ripe for discussion and kind of a policy sense. Right. And, 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 and like, like you're pointing out, Brian, this is, 
I think the, the problem of the crossover between tax and, and investment protection is older than the probably modern international law. I mean, if you look back even to the 1500s, I mean, a lot of wars got started, I mean, purely on, on disagreements on the exercise of fiscal power. So this quintessential power to to basically ha- I, uh, to, to, to implement taxes, to uh, execute a particular tax policy, um, that has been... Uh, has been going hand in hand as 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 old as the definition of a state has come mm-hmm. um, has come to being. So I would um, I think those those items are basically to public international lawyers has always been in line. But it's um, it's one of those items that are basically is the crossover right now that 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 was the focus of the study. Um, and I, uh, I I touch a little bit on the historical aspects. I think there's one specific item that historically I found particularly fascinating is sort of how in the late 1800s, like the, the Ottoman Empire basically uh, pledged its fiscal responsibility to some of the, some of the foreign powers. Um, and this goes to say basically how integral the power to tax is to the exercise of, uh, of state powers, both in terms of police powers, but also being one of the most important um, uh, powers of the state in regulating and, and, and shaping economic development. But how is this then typically regulated, just to set the stage, if we move into more more modern times in the world of, of investment treaties, how, how do we find the state's power to, to tax being regulated in investment treaties? Because that is obviously why typically, or, or I guess there's a separate discussion to be had about customer international law as well, but typically uh, it is through investment treaties that, that this is something that faces arbitral tribunals in, in modern days. So this is where, where it gets a bit complicated because there is this level of consensus that the state has a broad power to tax. Um, I think everybody would any sort of international scholar would accept that, uh, whether it's on a customer level or, you know, derived out of pure, I mean, pure, pure um, concept of sovereignty, which is a favorite for for everybody. Um, There is an understanding that the power to tax is very broad. Then later, and I would say that the critical point was basically somewhere in the 1920s, you start seeing uh, limits and acknowledgement of those limits to the power to tax. Um, I would argue that those limits existed even before, um, you know, tracing back um, to to some of the limitations in, in, in some of the early treaties. Um, but it was not formalized and it started, it didn't start emerging until basically in the 1920s. And um, those limits, so to speak, it, they're starting to percolate through and kind of um, get organized in, 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 in three, um, three concepts, basically. It's protection against arbitrary exercise of the power, obviously against expropriation and against discriminatory taxation. So you start seeing basically an emergence of this pattern of these three different distinct limits um, and how they're materialized, they, they develop differently. But you start seeing the sort of the outer limits being more restrained. Um, whereas early on in the early 1900s, it was very hard to challenge any restrictions on the on the state power tax. Now it's starting to be a little bit more uh, more accepted. And then the 
next item, I think there were two, two points to, to, to your question, Joel, is sort of where do they come in? I think the most common items that everybody has seen it is basically in the, in the investment treaties. About 10% of investment treaties will have some provision on taxation now. Um, and they usually say they have a, some sort of a carve out, um, and they will have um, they will have some sort of a protection against expropriatory taxation. So that is currently from from some of the data by the UNC, UNCTAD that's ranging around ten percent of the the bids. That that those are that the question is explicitly regulated in that form. Mm-hmm. And not only in, in BITs, of course, also in the Multilateral Energy Charter Treaty, which I guess is sort of the focal point of, of your book and, and the UCOS case and many of the other cases are, are ECT cases. And ECT, I take it, has a, a specific kind a of... very provision. special provision. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And, 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 you know, obviously there's a difference um, in, in a little bit of a, a difference in the approaches. Um, the most notorious one, and it was basically... Uh, taken up by the Yukos was um, was the Article Twenty One in the in the Energy Charter Treaty. But um, be, be, before we we delve into that, I mean the limits themselves um, they're not just only in the treaties. Um, there are some additional limits that we need to keep in mind. Is basically national constitutional law, customary international law treaty and basically even in an administrative considerations um i think there's quite a lot of work to 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 examine sort of the administrative limitations and and arbitrary protection but those those are basically outer limits but um in terms of specific and we cannot forget those items basically that there are other sources of those limitations but for us for investment arbitrations the most relevant obviously is the treaties both multilateral, like ECT and, and NAFTA as well, um, and the, the bilateral ones. Um, and then obviously customary international law. But if we were to delve heavily into the, in, in the chapter 21, chapter one is, as, as you probably are all familiar, you're, it, it, it's quite, quite a particular construction um, that is, has both a pretty interesting setup, how it was, it was, uh, negotiated, and then how we came to being, and then how we, it was basically interpreted um, throughout the, the, all the ECT arbitrations. Let's go into it. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll start with sort of how we came to being. Um, so there is quite a bit of a rich and, um, for better or worse, a bit of a messy negotiation process around the Energy Charter Treaty and how it was negotiated between different parties. And um, it, it's, it has such a rich negotiation history that it basically started off, um, you know, this great optimism at the end of the Cold War of bringing capital to Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe being able to develop these sort of resources. There was a lot of optimism um, coming and stemming out of this. And, um, you know, the full entire energy charter treaty is basically is, 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 is ripe with that level of optimism. But at one point, obviously, that optimism came into some, some sort of obst- obstacles as, 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 it, um, as it developed. And unfortunately, the energy charter treaty, uh, the, the taxation article is no exception to that. So it was actually, I mean, if you're looking a bit closer, um, it was 
it was basically introduced by the American uh, delegation. It was under the insistence of the American delegation. Um, and it had the aim, um, it had multiple aims. I think it's very hard to say what the aim was. There are a couple of hypotheses circulating um, and we can delve into it a little bit deeper. But the, the big ironic twist to the entire aspect is it was that it was promoted by, by, by the American delegation. And of course, the United States has, has never formally signed uh, the Energy Charter Treaty. So it creates the sort of um, discrepancy um, in the expectation that, <laughs> that follows sort of the optimism in the negotiation process. Um, so, yeah. Um, there, I mean, one of the, the benefits of sort of looking into um, into this topic, I, I, I was fortunate to dig through through some of the archives, and um, there are different approach. I mean, there are different hypotheses circulating, and one of the circulation. I mean, one of the ideas is that um, you know it was basically it was on the insistence of the um, uh, of the finance ministers, and it did not, um, you know, this chapter did not get too much attention. Um, I came across actually one of the the internal memorandums between the U.S. and the U.K. delegation uh, uh, that was quite quite interesting. And it's, I mean, it's not dispositive of this issue, but introduces another hypothesis that the taxation article was, um, for the most part, was basically introduced to harmonize any potential problems from investment protection mechanism and double taxation treaties, especially arising out of um, most favored nation clauses, basically, that um, the aim, the ultimate aim, and it, it seems quite plausible, and is, is just make sure that um, through the platform of various treaties binding um, different countries, um, this, uh, this mechanism operated without interfering, without uh, conflicting against the the, the existing regime um, of double taxation treaties, um, and it seems quite um, quite a reasonable approach and a hypothesis in order to to formulate it. Yeah, that does make the most sense. I'm sure there's some like conspiratorial alternatives, but that that definitely seems to be the heart of it, which is why that's an exception to the exception of of that rule. Right, right, and and whether I mean the, the judge is still out whether it's you know it has reach that goal it has created that level of certainty um but i think this this is the most plausible hypothesis basically that it was trying to to avoid by the use of the mfn clause that um and harmonize the the different treaties that are in place so can you walk us through the article quickly or as quick as possible <laughs> just to, right. to explain, set the stage right so being being such a uh an interesting article. It's there are different approach. I mean, there are different approaches. And and now what what has been developed up to this point is this idea of a carve out and clawback. It's a bit of um, it's a raw explanation of it, but basically that taxation issues are taken out. They're taken out from the ECT, and that is what is called by a clawback. And that's in Article Twenty One One. And then what follows um, is a number of um, more or less um, inclusion, so to speak. So despite that broad clawback, there are several reasons where nonetheless investment arbitration tribunals and, 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 and other um, 
um, you know, and, and states basically have consented to the review of taxation um, matters under very limited provisions. And they are basically what they're called as clawbacks. Um, it, this, this has been basically the, the preferred approach, quite, quite easily adopted in all the, the case law, but um, the most notorious uh, clawback is the one that found in 21.5, which permits for investment tribunals to examine claims linked to expropriation despite the fact that they're linked, they're rising out of taxation matters. So basically the way you would work, it would work in two steps in terms of formal analysis, logical analysis. Um, you have the ECT, you're protected by, by the ECT, but under 21.1, all taxation matters are not covered. However, you're brought in back into the treaty uh, if it is linked to, um, to, to expropriation. Um, so I think that's that's a bit of the, the 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 easiest sort of simplest way to explain it. Um, there are of course uh, you know th uh, three four uh, three four other exclusions providing for uh, interimary basically interimary measures. There's a bit of of uh, provision when it comes to sort of um, um, other other grounds for for going back, but that is a little bit. Of, I mean that, that's the main structure. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything's out except if it touches on these specific points, and then it come it can come back in, basically. Correct. Correct. And then there's there's obviously also there's a national treatment and the uh, most favored nation provision, and in twenty one three that's a bit harder to interpret. But the key one uh, to keep in mind is basically um, the twenty one five is on the expropriation. There's also the one on transit that is a bit. Has has not been used that extensively. Um, so there's basically those, those are the provisions, and then at the end, at twenty one seven, there are uh, there are the definitional problems. Um, it's basically trying to shed some light in in how to interpret uh, the 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 article um, in terms of providing certain definitions that are basically creating a little bit of friction between this idea of a clawback uh, and carve out. This idea of clawback and carve out is it's quite accepted to, despite the fact that it's 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 so raw in itself. Um, if you're shifting a bit more from a taxation environment, this sort of a structure is quite common. And I think this is where it's creating a lot of problems. If you're looking at some of the national laws, um, you see that basically there is tax, you know, that you have um, uh, provision upon a provision upon a provision is quite quite common. So another way of looking, and it's something that I'm proposing quite quite heavily in the book, is um, not looking at it as a clawback and carve out, particularly because there are limitations within it. Um, you look at it basically it's something being excluded and something being included, and then basically within those items, whether you, there are some sort of exceptions, limitations, or what have you. Um, and that might actually make it a little bit easier out of this sort of multi-tier, multi-level items of what falls under the treaty and what doesn't fall under the treaty. Mm -hmm. That becomes more two-dimensional or easier to, to think about. I agree. Because uh, I've always been confused by that terminology myself, trying to construct it in my head. Yeah. And, and I, I actually go a little bit further and I'm thinking more of a sort of like building blocks, um, you know, 
uh, were, were you taking? So, I mean, you can definitely think of sort of, is it in or is it out? Um, and, and this is definitely the helpful way, sort of, if you were to go to a client saying, can I bring this claim? You really have to, to, to explain very clearly, yes or no. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a bit from, from, my own, from my own background. You want a clear answer. But um, with treaties, obviously, being lawyers, it gets into the whole entire it depends. And this is where this structure of saying, here's something excluded, included, limitation, and exception. Those four principles allows for a lot of maneuverability to come to that decision, Joel, where you're saying, is this in or is this out? Uh, and if it's not in or out, this is how you are saying it. Obviously, the clawback and the carve out is very helpful, but unfortunately, it's not setting it up on the fact that certain, and this is where the Article 21 is, is quite helpful, um, because there, within the clawback, there is a limitation. So there are other than certain type of taxes, for instance, are not covered. And this is when you, it, it's helpful to come start thinking about one level, one, an additional level, is this perhaps a limitation to, to the clawback and so forth. And instead of a clawback, I think it may be helpful to think more of like excluded, included um, mm. item, basically. Even, I, even with this analytical framework in mind, you still have to, of course, as a starting point, also interpret or give meaning to what tax is or, or taxation measure as the Article 21 and many other treaties use, right? That's That seems to be one of the, the, the key issues to what, what is what is taxation measures or tax? That's that's exactly the, the quintessential question that came out in UCOS. And it was tried to be revived in a lot of the Spanish cases, unsuccessful. But obviously, um, this tension between taxation measures, which is a defined term, and taxes, which is in the uh, 21.5, the, the expropriation clawback, so to speak, or inclusion, um, that's where the tension comes in. And here, you know, there's there's quite a lot of discussions looking at the preparatory and the travel preparatory, where which one is, is broader than, than the other. But um, and there are different approaches when coming com, coming to it. But, but I think the one approach from Yukos that was very helpful, um, but it creates a lot of discussion is basically is the measure a bona fide tax? I mean, is 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 the is the measure that is alleged, particularly for expropriation purposes, is that actually a tax? Uh, so before you come under the treaty, you come up to the basically the ordinary meaning, where they fall under the ordinary meaning. And that is one very helpful approach in terms of seeing, okay, what, what are those limitations? And I'm proposing in, in, my, in my paper is that, that that exercise is in an interpretation of the ordinary meaning, um, you obviously you can you have you are ob obligated to look at at actually you know the ordinary meaning of this. But um, within that that exercise, I think what Yuko has, has said is you you have a bit of flexibility and you can introduce a lot of the analytical tools coming out, especially when you're interpreting the actual meaning of the word. So. I mean, this is very elementary, but if you're saying that what is a tax and what isn't a tax, what would be an example of a measure that wouldn't arise to be a taxation measure, for example? So let's, I mean, it's always very, um, very good to put like sort of the two extremes, you know, what is very mm -hmm. clearly a tax and what is very clearly not a tax. So what is a tax is basically out of your paycheck, 
you're paying to the government, um, you know, a percentage of your income that goes for military, for social welfare, for pensions and what have you. That is a tax. It goes to the state for, you know, for public purposes and what have you. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other extreme, there is basically um, a provision where you go into, uh, you know, public transportation. You, you guys are in London, you go into, uh, into the metro and you're paying, um, you're paying a fare to ride the train. Mm-hmm. Now, the metro itself is also organized by the city of London and what have you. It, it's organized. So you, you, it is a payment to the state. But you're getting something in return. I see. And this idea of, of an unrequited, and this is basically the sort of term that OECD uses, is the unrequited. When you're making a payment to the government and you're getting something in return as a result, a direct something in return, that basically disposes of any sort of a possibility that is a tax. So I think if you're taking those two extremes, it's pretty, pretty clear. Uh, where the, the extremes come out. And then these these concepts came actually quite quite a lot in some of the renewable cases because there were certain uh, fees imposed by the uh, by, by, by Italy and um, you know they were used for um, organizing sort of renewable um, um, re- renewable uh, activities and providing information and what have you. And then there, the information, I mean, the, the question is, are, there, are the investors getting anything in return as a result? And this was, was subject for it, and there was a little bit of a division and it's still, still coming through. But, you know, for our purposes, it's very much the dispositive concern is, are you getting something back for your money? Or is that money going to the military and what have you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that is usually a pretty helpful sort of division um, in terms of deciding whether something is a tax or not. Gotcha. Now, to the, a, lot of the, a lot of the discussion we're having now is really on the effect. So what happens to the tax? What happens to the money that is received from the tax? Is there any element, and this, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because a lot of these clawbacks or inclusions, as you're calling them, kind of relate, or they relate to expropriation, they relate to national treatment. So could, is there also an element of the intent of the state in imposing these measures that could disqualify it or qualify it as a tax? You mean the subjective intent of, of the state? Right. <laughs> this is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets tricky. And again, you, you have to go to UCOs. Um, because in UCOs, I mean, there's always a flip side in, of the debate. But in UCOs, the Russian state always argued that those measures they were adopted, they were, by all means, they were intended by the Russian Federation to apply in, in, in an objective way and what have you. So the problem, a lot of it, especially when you go to the root of it, is the bona fide nature is how do you establish a state intent? And I think, as, as we all know in, in practitioners, it's very, very difficult to establish that level of state intent. I think in some of the Spanish cases, um, claimants tried very hard to show that the, um, the, the, the TVPE, the, the tax on the value added, um, not, not the value added, but on, on the, the production of, of the energy, was, was basically subjectively introduced uh, with, with ill intent. And there was, you know, in every single Spanish case, there's a new variation that basically there was the minister who took a podium and said this and this. 
Um, so there was an ill intent and subjective intent of the state. And so far, my, my conclusion, and of course, a lot of people might disagree, is that that subjective intent is, number one, very difficult to establish. And um, for better or worse, it, it is not dispositive on the objective determination of the effect okay. of that tax. Okay. So the state could be mistaken in saying, well, you know, this something is a tax when in effect it is not or is it applied in an arbitrary fashion. That is mm -hmm. my position. And this is, this is my hypothesis. And this is exactly where the outer limits come in. Um, and the threshold could be quite high. And how you interpret it, of course, it, it becomes slightly more complicated and what have you. Mm -hmm. So you've written a, a book on this now and you've dug through the, the, the case law and, and read probably more than most, uh, maybe even more than, than any other person uh, about this. What would you say are some of the future topics to look forward to when it comes to this intersection of, of taxation measures and investment treaty arbitration? Well... Uh, there, there are several topics, several lines of, of, of interest, and, and one is basically how does I mean the link between um, the interpretation? How is it going to be incorporated in the analysis? These limits, which I think by now we we try we we accept them, is how they will be incorporated. I think that will be the the, the item to watch and be very interesting to see. Um, how will tribunals incorporate or how are the arguments of the parties going to be developed, whether it's going to be under formal interpretation of the treaty, um, whether it's going to be under, you know, some, some creative use of customary international law. Um, I think that would be a very interesting item to, to track and see how it develops in, in the future. Another item that, especially for energy purposes, I think is, is fascinating is states are going to be increasingly, increasingly more uh, under pressure to adopt certain strategies um, for generating economic activity, economic investment in the energy sector. And the tax tools are going to, to be quintessential on this. And we've seen some, some quite not successful instances where, where tax Tax has not been implemented, so what tax measures have not been implemented. So I would I would look for how do tax tax relief programs link to cost based um, incentives schemes uh, and production incentive schemes and see sort of a discrepancy how states will try to adjust. I think there's quite a lot of activity, quite quite interesting coming out from World Bank where um, it's putting a lot of pressure on sort of, of cost driven mechanisms to rather than production heavy, um, which creates a lot of discrepancy. So there's a lot of interesting um, parts of the law. And then of course, um, cases are still coming from, from different jurisdictions. So um, it'd be a very fascinating topic to watch. Is there any movement uh, that you know of uh, when it comes to treaty drafting? Because the investment treaty is being redrafted now, the ECT is being updated and, and the states are very much engaging in general. And, and redrafting investment treaties. Is this something that you think is on the table? I haven't really, I don't know, which may say more about me than about the, the topic. This is, uh, this is actually where, where it gets quite interesting because tax arbitration is obviously coming up and is up on the, on the discussions quite a bit. But this is basically in the double taxation treaties. 
Um, and there's always been, I mean, going back to the 90s, you know, there was always the sort of harmonization of double taxation treaties and sort of tax lawyers talking about arbitration being so wonderful and so great. So there's a lot of activity coming out on the European stage when it comes to that. Um, but there's a bit of a discourse coming out, you know, with how this reconciles with the investment arbitration protections, especially since, um, you know, for better or worse, we have, I mean, in the investment arbitration community is, is it has a lot of other um, problems that is confronting, including very strong attacks on its legitimacy. So I, I think it's rightfully so that uh, the priority lies actually in, in establishing legitimacy in a lot. A lot of the discussion coming out whether there is or not necessary to have an investment court. So um, I think your assessment is quite, quite, quite uh, accurate. That unfortunately this is not coming out to to the forefront, uh, which is quite disappointing, particularly because um, states are increasingly more reliant on tax measures generating economic activity in the energy sector, not to say the least. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, at the same I time, you know. Yeah, please. No, I think you um, to kind of to wrap this up, which is actually going to the to the end of your monograph. You really you include some red flags and proposals to legislatures, and even include some proposals for uh, treaty drafting provisions. So I think um, everyone can turn to the book uh, for their any sort of anyone working in the government that is looking to either redraft or draft anew some of these tax provisions can maybe turn to your monograph for some a helpful toolkit. Exactly. Uh, and thanks, Brian, for, for, for flagging this. I mean, the ultimate result was basically this monograph is actually putting into action, at least making the first step out of this 2008 plenary uh, address that Professor Walde did uh, and putting into pre into, into, into practice and, and developing this toolkit, um, which hopefully will serve states both in treaty drafting, but also um, when harmonizing legislation uh, related to taxation. Thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing what happens in the cases to come. I'm sure you'll have a, another monograph to come out to cover the next, the next wave. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Cornell. So today we're going to discuss um, a blog post that I saw um, on Opinio Juris by Justina Uriburu, which I thought was very interesting and was entitled Between Elitist Conversations and Local Clusters, How Should We Address English Centrism and International Law? Or, as I mentioned in the intro, English centrism with a French accent. <laughs> because it seems to me that Justina is criticizing the use of French also in this article. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um, it's a very, I think, topical issue. The issue of the fact that international law is dominated by English as the lingua franca. Uh, in publications, in court decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And in and I fact, think we, we can say at this point too as well that it applies equally to international arbitration specifically, although she speaks more broadly about public and private international law, it does apply. I think we can all agree, right? That yeah. to international arbitration too. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I think it, in fact, 
if I'm going to be so bold, I'm going to say this applies, uh, generally speaking, to uh, social sciences, too. To the world. So it's not <laughs> just, a, a, again, as many of the topics that we discussed in Happy Fun Time, I don't think this is a topic that is specific to international arbitration, but the interesting part is that it is not specific to international arbitration. So it's interesting to see what other people in other fields are saying about this. But let's stick to the law part. I think one other reference that Justina is referring to is, and uh, Joel, we just talked about this earlier offline, but is Anthea Roberts' book, Is International Law International? And uh, the reason why I thought the reference was particularly interesting, even though the book uh, was published in 2018, so two years ago from now, is that there's um, a couple of pages, more than a couple of pages, actually, a, a section in the book which addresses the issue of English as a lingua franca um, in international law. And uh, I think before we go in too much detail, I'd like to hear your views first on what you think about it. Do you think it's true that English is the lingua franca? And secondly, do you think it's an issue? Because these are two different points. <laughs> <laughs> yes and yes are my two short answers. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, I, yes I agree. <laughs> yes and yes, but what do we do about it? So what do we do about it? So yes, it is true. Um, I think we can refer to the data that, in fact, Professor Roberts has in her book, which is really interesting, not only on the fact that English is the core, you know, lingua franca um, in publications, but also she analyzed, I mean, she actually refers to studies that have been conducted, and she analyzed herself some uh, international tribunals decisions, so not just in arbitration, not just in arbitration, but um, like when you think international law, you would look at the ICJ decisions, for example, right? Or, um, you know, other international tribunals decision. And it seems clear that the references and the footnotes in these uh, cases are to uh, mostly English publications or English or UK or US uh, court decisions <laughs> when we refer to domestic uh, domestic courts uh, approach to international law. So there are some examples. I don't know if I have time to go into this, but maybe just one. Um, for example, um, in the prosecutor versus Jelisic ICTY judgment, there's 31 footnotes referencing national legal system, and the text includes many journal expressions like quote, national case law, or quote, any specific decided case, whether domestic or international, um, which makes it appear that the citations are global, but no civil law sources or sources written in a language other than English are cited. And most refer to US and UK law. Mm. Um, that to talk about international arbitration more specifically, um, and this, again, is, is not so much about the English thing, but about the Western-centric approach of international law, uh, Damien Charlotin, a researcher that we all know uh, in arbitration, um, has coded um, case law referred to in judgments and awards by the ICJ, the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and Investment Treaty Tribunals. And he found that the highest numbers of references um, in those international awards were to U.S. case law and UK case law, followed by French law and Canadian law and Australian law, which are really small percentage. So Can I add something on, on this point, Sadek? Because I was actually talking to Damien about yeah. something related or something and reading, and he was tweeting as well, because he, he 
after the thing that was cited by Anthea in her book, he went on to write a dissertation at Cambridge, mm-hmm. which is really, really good, where he really extensively codes a lot of jurisprudence. And he found that French and Spanish awards, awards in French and Spanish in arbitration, are quoted when everything else has been cleared out from the comparison about mm-hmm. one third as often as English only awards. Mm-hmm. And he has an example with the Salini criteria, because there was an, an earlier case, which was basically, it was very similar. I can't remember the, the, the name of the claimant right now, which is part of the point. That case, unlike Salini, was never translated from French into English, which is why the Salini criteria is what we know, because Salini, that, that part of that award was, the entire award, I think, was translated from French into English and became the Salini criteria. But in mm-hmm. fact, there's another only available in French award that predates Salini, which is essentially the same, but that never had the same breakthrough oh. capacity. That's so interesting. Yeah. That, yeah, that is so interesting. And this, this actually is a great, great point because it shows that the fact that only are, are the majority of references are in English, um, you know, has a, a, a performative or I don't know which, sorry, excuse me if I'm not using the right word, but it has a direct impact on the creation of international law itself. Right. right. So that's, that's the core problem, uh, issue, because I was asking if, uh, you know, whether or not it was an issue. And so what are the solutions to this? Should we stop speaking English, even on this podcast? Je devrais comment continuer en français et toi, tu devrais parler en suédois? C'est ça qu'on devrait faire? Oui. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, I mean, in the blog post that I mentioned, <clears throat> it seems to me, and I stand corrected, um, that there's also a criticism of the fact not only that English is the dominant language, but both French and English are. And specifically from the perspective of the author who is from Argentina, saying, you know, that's an additional burden on foreign students because not only do they have to master English, which is in itself also not a given for everyone outside of uh, the US and the UK, uh, which we forget. But, um, but then they also have to master an additional language, which is French, with no connection whatsoever to their country. So is it still, does it still make sense to have stuff in French? Can uh, I ask you now that you are, I have a French person on the line who cannot get out, how do you feel as a citizen of the world whose <laughs> first language is French about this insistence on French being used? It's mentioned in the blog post that it's still, you know, it's the... The ICJ is, is bilingual, so is the European Court of Justice, you have the Hague Academy, which is a, a big school that many students go through when they study international law. There are still so many places where you basically need to know French in, additional, or in addition to English in order to be competitive. And that's, of course, because French people generally feel strongly about this. It has historical roots, but it, it remains the case because French people guard this very, very do you actively. Need, so... There is a question that I was thinking because obviously there was the French element in me immediately when I read this. I was like, what is this? Like French is just the approach of French people is just we have to be against the fact that there's only one lingua franca and it's just English for the reasons just explained that there's a risk that um, the fact that English is the lingua franca will naturally have an impact on international law, which will become more English, in fact, more American. That's the criticism that we hear often from French people. Right. Um, it's not so much that French should be the lingua franca. It's just that they're defending French mm-hmm. as an additional language um, in international law. And the question that I had is, is it true? Do you need to be a French speaker to make it an international law? Or is it really just English? No, abs- really? absolutely not. But what the no, article says... Anymore. 
No. What, what the article says is that you'd have to be, in order to be competitive, you'd have to have a second language or you'd have to have, in the, in the case of French, becoming the second lingua franca, a third language. But the problem that I see in this article, not the problem in the article, but the problem that is lifted from the article is that where, and this is what she calls clusters, which is what happens if you kind of extend that rationale to, to its extreme, which is you're going to have everybody speaking their own language and now just having like clusters of national law or international law, depending on like what, how far the language extends and no, nothing being the cross, the bridge to cross between these two clusters. And there, therein lies English um, to bring, I think it's fine to have, you know, she, she doesn't even talk about Spanish, which is up there as well. Um, but, you know, I think it's fine to have these three and that they need to be accessible in all three of these languages. But, um, but and the cluster I, part also comes with sort of an, especially the way it is now, it's an inherent problem of, of center periphery as well. Mm-hmm. Because you, you have like the, the center that we all perceive as the center. It's, it's the English speaking practice and the English speaking world. And then, of course, you have like regional conferences, regional publishing, regional arbitration centers where you can do things in another language, but they will forever remain on the periphery. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I actually thought about this reading the piece uh, like three, four years ago, uh, the Young Arbitrary Stockholm arranged a conference, and those are typically in Swedish only. And I had a friend come from, from Switzerland to present on one of the panels, and that was the only English-speaking panel of the day because there was a non-Swede on the panel. And he like, <laughs> went to Sweden to do this, and he could not even participate in the rest of the day. He was on his thing, and then the rest was in Swedish, and he just like, wandered around Stockholm, and we had drinks, because there was nothing else for him to do. It annoyed right. me at the time, because I, you know, I instinctively think, provincial, parochial, little Sweden, why do we do this in Swedish and not in English? But I, reading the article or the blog post, it really made me question as well, there might be a point that actually fighting for these smaller languages and their role in the field of arbitration as well to make sure that we have things happening in other languages because language means something. Were you, but you wrote your PhD in English. Yeah. Oh, Why no, did you choose on that? The, on the, the academic aspect of this. Okay. It, it, was, it wasn't a choice, oh. frankly. It was. I mean, I could have written it in Swedish. Of course, I would be allowed, but it would just be stupid. Then I don't know how many people with an academic interest in investment law there even is in Sweden. 20, yeah. maybe? It would, be, it would be pointless. I would have to translate it into English anyway if I wanted it published or discussed or, or anything. And mm-hmm. it's the same for most people, unless I think you're maybe French, German, and Spanish speakers. There's still a realistic alternative to, to write significant pieces in your own language. But otherwise, it's English. Mm. But see, but see that's, that's one of the key problems is that you might have thought in English when you were writing in English, but if you had, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but it seems like a lot of people who write articles in their, um, in their own national languages, they are having difficulty in translating that into English when they're told, oh, just publish in English, so you'll have a wider audience because the concepts are not the same. So translation, because at the end of the blog, you know, she, she the author suggests that there should be more translation done, um, you know, in works, of, whether it's Russian or Spanish or other languages should be translated so that there's a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really discuss here in this blog post or, or in fact, even in <clears throat> Professor Roberts' book, I don't think she addresses that point of the issue of translation itself. 
And that's where I was referring to other social scientists who have actually thought about this. There's a sociology of translation. There's some sociologists that have thought about how translation is actually a means to impose ideas. Uh, who you're going to translate, where you're going to translate them, or so in which, when I say where, it's in which book, which edition, which journal. Right. This all has connotations, and we've seen that in the past. And, you know, just to take a drastic example, you know, there's polit political motives to translate Marx at the time, for example, or some liberal economist by the UK. And this is all related to funding and everything. And I don't see why that whole analysis couldn't be applicable here, even more so, because international law like has a direct impact on, uh, you know, on power. It's difficult to um, to distinguish uh, the two. So translation in the term of translated from one language to an another is one um, one mean one explanation of what translation means. But translation also means, you know, etymologically. How do you transfer that thought into right. another thought? And that's where the problem lies is into this circulation of ideas that's imperfect and dominated by certain trends. Um, you, you pick up on that when you learn other languages as well, of course, that that's basically one of the, that's on a, on a lofty note, that's a good point when we're talking about it in our field as well, like learning other languages add other benefits that aren't just connected to mm -hmm being competitive or being able to work in several languages, you also learn how other cultures function and you have to expand your mind and be flexible and empathetic and mm -hmm. develop and skills that are useful on the, even on, an, on sort of a non-language. Uh, Absolutely. Non and this is, this is why I think translation is a bit of a, I, I don't know if it's really going to work. It's a bit of an ideological solution because to translate a treatise or to translate a book you know, you're going to get a translate, are you going to get a translation service to do this? And then that is going to be an extremely costly and lengthy process to kind of communicate what the author really wanted to communicate on this certain aspect into three or four different languages, but taking into account the other languages like, you know, history and expressions. And it, I mean, I, it, it, I don't see it happening. I, it, it, but um, I, I don't know the solution on this problem, unfortunately. And also as practitioners, I was going to say here, um, talk to Brian about this, but I'm sure you've had the experience. I've had it multiple times where we fight about what the proper interpretation of a term is in a contract or in a oh, treaty, yeah. right? And then you refer to your preferred <laughs> explanation in the language. Uh, you know, often treaties, in fact, are official in one or two or three languages. Right. But when you compare um, the wording, that don't mean exactly exactly the same thing and no. in a convention is not really helpful in that <laughs> respect <laughs> I would say <laughs> um, so that's also an issue right I mean the terms that you use and um, more than the the vehicular status which is a, a term that's used in in some of the research on the impact of translation there's also this issue of what um, the words actually meant originally I think mm. uh, that's a problem so Guys, we don't have any solution to that. We have to take a vote. Should we uh, stop the lingua franca altogether? Or I, um, I think I read somewhere, I'm sorry, I don't have the reference uh, under my eyes right now, but I did read a piece by someone saying that we do need a lingua franca, but it can't just be English. It has to be like a, an English that's not a common law English, but a, a, oh. an English that's devoid of, of certain... Mm, yeah, this, this uh, is the whole idea behind the failed Esperanto project way back oh, when yeah. people were way more idealistic. Like, let's create a whole new language and we 
let's have linguists who are very good at this create a language that is very easy to learn regardless of your own language background like a lowest common denominator language and then we just start from scratch and everyone has to speak this and it will become the world language with no pre-cultural annotations attached to it that'd be very cool well, I yeah, think, I, I mean, to take a communist approach to all of this, you know, the, the rising Please. water lifts all boats. So I think everyone needs to, you know, if you're a, a, an arbitrator on a tribunal site to, you know, a national case that is not in the English language and don't even translate it in the citation, you know, and kind of expect everyone to kind of rise up to a level of you don't need to know, like English is you need to know other languages in order to get through this arbitral process type of thing. I, think I saw Martin Paparinski, who's a Latvian international law scholar here in London, he tweeted, mm-hmm. I think, about this article. And he said just anecdotally, it's his impression, which I think I share, that it was easier 10, 15 years ago to get away with only relying on English awards and decisions and material, mm-hmm. and that you now increasingly see direct citations or footnotes referring to non-English material way more than before and that it changed five seven ten years ago that it, it is slowly changing that is actually my impression as well now when you're reading awards or pleadings that it's, it seems to be more common or the, the arrow is moving towards an assumption that we can't do this in English alone mm-hmm. yeah exactly so that so are there references to you mean other languages or, or just other decisions that are not just UK and U- US decisions? I think this was a, a language point, but... Oh, uh, the language point, okay. Yeah, but the two oh. are tied together, I think. I mean, it comes up, obviously, in, in the exit context because there are three official languages and you do have awards every now and then in, in French and Spanish and other mm. decisions and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, um, very interesting. Let's see what's, uh, what's going to happen in the future, but um, it seems that people are are thinking that the dynamics of powers will change in the next couple of years. Um, So maybe we'll have more stuff in Chinese. Who knows? (laughs) And uh, we'll all have to speak Mandarin and the podcast will be in Chinese. Yeah. Uh, Who knows? Uh, I mean, that doesn't... uh, The fact that Brian just laughed at this. (laughs) I mean, it will take me a while to get to that level where I can do this podcast in Chinese. But I'm looking forward to the process. Yeah, looking forward to the process. Well, thank you, guys. That was a very interesting discussion. And let's continue that over... When are we going to see each other again? Maybe one day. <laughs> no, 2023. I, I realized I was in, in pre-COVID times, I was actually supposed to be in Paris for a super interesting hearing next week. And that made me a bit sad when I thought of the, the alternative universe in which I would be on my way to Paris. <laughs> ah, where you would have been speaking French. That's the right. Next, the next lingua franca. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the old, the former lingua franca. The one and only, yeah. All right. Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye.